Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel from On Shammet Synagogue and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Bahalotacha. Did law change society or did society change the law? Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Rabbi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm going to ask you the first question today because you always put me on the spot first. Okay. I'm going to ask you the question, um, what do you think is the biggest change in law in your lifetime? Seatbelts? Seat, no, I think it's a great question. We're talking about American law, Jewish law. Which would well, you like to talk about? Well, what comes to mind first for you? Biggest change in law in, that, you know, in your lifetime? I think Roe v. Wade, as an American, that was the biggest change. And the recent Dobbs decision, also you know, a sea change in its own way, which is creating reactions in this country. But as you wrote so eloquently in your book on the pill, the ability for a woman to take charge of her own reproductive system became a groundbreaking issue, not only with the advent of birth control, but also with the decision that abortion became available and legal. There are a whole variety of questions that could be raised there, but to me, as an American, that would be the thing that came right to mind. How about you? Interesting. You know, we're both old enough to say that the um, Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act occurred during our lifetimes, um, 64 and 65. Gay marriage, um, certainly much more recently. These are big, you know, sea changes, things that really um, change the very nature of of our American experience. What occurs to me is that um, in each of these laws, you know, I like to ask, you know, why they happened. Because did the law change our society or did society change the law? You know, how much pressure was there? Why did we change these laws in the first place? And that push and pull between, you know, the law and, and human behavior compelling change in the law is always one that I find interesting and something I've explored in my books. But I think um, to, to pull a, a Rabbi Siegel here, we might find something relevant in this week's Torah portion. Maybe. And in fact, that's true. <laughs> there Jonathan. we go. I'm getting the hang of this thing. Yeah, yeah. This is a, I like this role reversal because in this week's portion of Balotcha, we have the story, uh, this kind of odd story where a group of people come to Moses. And they, by the way, they've been in the desert for a while now. Uh, this is their second year. And this group of people have found themselves to be uh, ritually impure. And that has an impact on their ability to participate in the Passover ritual, the eating of the Paschal lamb specifically. They can't take part in the core story uh, and the ritual surrounding it of the Jewish people, that of going, going out from Egypt. They come to Moses with a problem. And what's amazing is that God responds and says, in this particular case, because this will happen in the future, too. There will always be people who are ritually impure. They can observe Passover not in the first month on the, 15th, on the 14th day, but the second month on the 14th day. And so here you're seeing a unanticipated need, and it is being addressed within the law. And so the law is evolving even before the Torah is finished. So within the Torah itself, you see there are mechanisms to allow the law to evolve. And so you look at American jurisprudence and the conversation we're having a minute ago, whether we're talking about Roe v. Wade or the Voter Rights Act, in the same way that the Torah is struggling with a need in society, 
and what I would suggest has ethical overtones, that there are some people who are prohibited from participating in the central right of the Jewish people for no fault of their own. They're now being included. So I think that the Voters' Right Act and the um, and Roe v. Wade fit into that category that any society has to have the ability for the law to change and to evolve. Yeah, what I'm curious about, there's probably no really good newspaper coverage to um, indicate whether this happened, is how the voice of the people might have affected that change, whether there was a demand among the people for a second chance to, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, there are people that came to Moses and requested this. There's another case with the daughters of Slofchad when they are the only ones in their family left, they're women, and they cannot inherit according to the Torah. Only men could inherit, which follows the larger system of its time. And there again, the Torah makes an exception. God comes in and says, oh, they can inherit. So you see this internal mechanism for the law to constantly check itself and see, is it relevant to the people? Is it addressing the ethical needs of the people in their time? And so what you have, what I would consider to be a living body of law. Yeah, and that's really interesting to me because it's a sign of a healthy uh, system of law because it's responsive. You know, we see this time and time again throughout American history. You, know, you mentioned Roe versus Wade. The reason, one of the big reasons um, abortion was legalized was because women for decades and decades demanded it and found ways to take care of themselves when the law wasn't taking care of them and when they didn't have much voice in politics. And we saw the same thing with, with gay rights so in, a, in a much more rapid timeline. We see, um, I mean, I can remember even in the 80s or 90s when it was, it was laughed at the idea that, that, that gay people might have the same rights to, to marriage as, as, as anyone else. And now, you know, just a very short time um, that becomes law. And it's because humans are demanding change. You know, they're not waiting for the courts. They're, the behavior changes and the, the law catches up. It seems like we're seeing an example of that much further back in our in our Torah. Right. And in a way, you could look at the different streams of Judaism, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, and you could see you can make the argument that each one is a offering a different response to Sinai or how the law is interpreted. In the 19th century, or actually in the 18th, late 18th century, German Jews and Western European Jews were faced with the prospect of being allowed out of the ghetto. They were being emancipated. But in order to be emancipated, they needed to act, dress, and function like Europeans. They had to come out of the ghetto. And suddenly, things like Shabbat became problematic. Clothing separated from the The way they ate separated them from the community. The reform movement made a sweeping decision, those who led the reform movement, and they said, well, then we're reforming Judaism, and we are going to declare that only the ethical laws of the Torah are obligated for all time. Love your neighbor as yourself, don't steal, etc. But laws that have ritual intent, laws of kashrut, of dietary laws, those laws are no longer binding. They haven't been binding since the time of Moses, according to them. Which, by the way, in many ways is a response to modernity. It's, you know, says we are going to lose ourselves in this and Judaism will be lost to us. And so what you see in the response to modernity is a hardening, is a um, decision to 
not be as open to changes within the law because it threatens the stability and the longevity of the Jewish people from that perspective. The conservative movement was the one approach that tried to kind of balance what was called at the time tradition and change and created a evolutionary response within the legal system. This is a very meaningful conversation for me because this is what drew me to the conservative movement. I remember, by the way, in my own rabbinate, the whole question of uh, same-sex marriage and when that began to come up. And I was waiting for the law committee and the conservative movement to make a decision. And I know that they were considering it, but I felt that the needs of the congregation, the people who were coming to me, that I was sort of, that I wasn't sort of, I was turning them away because I said, well, we have to wait for the law committee. I realized that I was creating far more damage. And I took it upon myself as the Mar de Atre, as the legal authority of the congregation, to make the decision that before, even before the conservative movement's law committee made a decision, I began performing single-sex marriages. I was first, certainly the first conservative rabbi in Chicago to do that. But this goes back to your analysis that there was an outcry of the people. I made that decision at that moment in time. And I'm happy that I did, and uh, I think the congregation has has responded well to it. But I think it's a good example. Yeah, and I think uh, the moral of the story here is that we have to use our voices, and we may feel like the law is against us. We may feel like we're not empowered, but we have to realize that if you don't speak out and, and to say something about your objections, you have no chance of having it heard. But if you do speak out, even if you feel like you're in the minority, if nobody's listening, uh, you don't know what history is going to bring. You don't know how many people might begin to come along with you and, and how um, the law may catch up. And, uh, you know, I think about this in terms of the balancing act we, we see right now because Roe versus Wade is um, in a very different place. Um, and um, we are now fighting it out street by street, block by block, state by state to see what the law is going to be. And the Supreme Court, um, these supposed originalists claim that the Constitution is some kind of a sacred document that we can't change. Of course, they're engaged every day in changing it. But um, nevertheless, what they're saying is um, we're going to let people decide. If that's the, the, the true result of Dobbs, then maybe all hope is not lost. Does the Constitution have a voice today? In other words, or is the Constitution what we make it to be? That's, I think, that the heart of the argument about originalism. You know, does the thinking of the founders have anything to say to us today? Or do we say these are men who lived in the 18th century and you know, we can consider it. They get a vote, but they, as, as Mordecai Kaplan once said about Jewish law, they get a vote, but they don't get a veto. So that's part of the debate. And that, that debate, by the way, exists, you know, in Jewish law today as well. Does the Torah actually have anything to say? Can you, in our society today, say no? I'm talking about from, from a Jewish law mm -hmm. perspective. Are there things that we simply say there's a boundary here? You cannot go beyond that. Or is everything yes and or no but? How do we think about that? Does the law have its own integrity? Does the Constitution have its own integrity? That's part of the debate going on today as well. Obviously, the, the law must have, the Constitution, the Torah must have integrity, but it also must allow for wrestling, for, for flexibility, for people to engage with it and to and to push at it where um, they feel like it needs, it needs to adapt. So it's interesting, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how the American experience, the Western experience, I should say, 
has affected Judaism and Jewish law. That the basis for Reform Judaism, the basis for Conservative Judaism, all developed either in Western Europe or in America. And I think that they're very much influenced. Judaism, in some ways, is very much influenced by the emancipation, uh, the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, all of that, uh, the science, scientific revolution. But in Israel, what you're seeing is a very different conversation going on, where you are watching the ultra-Orthodox elements in Israel, the Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, be, uh, and the chief rabbinate, basically saying, uh, no, this is we're, we're going to have an Orthodox country, and we are going to impose that on the larger system. And we're starting to see some of the laws change, and those protests in Israel are responding to that. And so in some ways, um, there is no uh, halachic or Jewish law legal methodology in Israel to create that change when the chief rabbinate is part of the government and the uh, ultra-Orthodox parties are part of the uh, ruling coalition. So we're seeing how that lines up and how this idea of the law evolving becomes a threat to the Orthodox universe, the ultra-Orthodox universe, I should say, because there are many in the more modern Orthodox community that are open to having really thoughtful conversations and to allow law to evolve, perhaps in a, in a more narrow parameter, but nonetheless. But in the ultra-Orthodox community, you know, it's like the old joke about how many ultra-Orthodox Jews does it take to change a light bulb? And they respond, change? And of course, that's the joke. Right. But, then, but what we're watching is that kind of debate going on between Jews in America and Jews in Israel. Yeah, and it's not so different from the debate over our Supreme Court, which some people say is being um, dominated by a, a right-wing Christian majority who are imposing their religious values on American law. So it's a, it's a constant struggle. And then the, the, obviously uh, the, the protests are trying to pull it back and maintain some balance. And that, that struggle is, uh, is, I guess, an eternal one. And... The tragedy, I think, of our time is that identity politics have become so pervasive that conversations are impossible. Yes. We're watching, you know, gun violence succeed and go beyond epidemic proportions. And there's no conversation to be had in state legislatures. And the and we're seeing what's happening in the abortion debate in this country, that people are taking sides. And again, I don't think the Jewish community is immune to this, but I think all of us can learn an important lesson from this week's portion, where God gets involved and says, yes, there can be change. There can be the evolution of the law when there is an outcry from the people. And when there is an outcry, we need to listen and the law needs to, I think, respond, whether it's Jewish law or the constitution of this country. Yeah, and it starts with the people's voices. We have to remember that, that it would, especially when we don't seem to be listening to each other, that you still have to try to engage and be heard. Absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi. <laughs>